Jesus. I want to thank Tom for leading us in prayer and the music team for leading us in worship. I think we had a really special time of worship this morning. We're looking to God because that's what we need to do, right? I mean, that's the best thing we can do also. Let's pray before we look into this morning's passage. Father, we just um, come to you again as we need to, as we continually come to you. We ask for your help in all these matters that we're, we're talking about this morning. And we pray, Lord, also that we can be as a congregation, as a group of your worshipers, that we can draw close to you so that we will do the best that we can do to promote your name and to pro promote peace in your name. We uh, just ask your help as we look into this passage so that we may grow closer to you and know more about you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> you know, uh, we gather with some very serious concerns on our minds concerning the world stage. And some people are even talking about like if certain nations get involved in this combat, this conflict, that it could even lead to the Third World War. I don't know about that. I think that's been uh, prophesied before, but uh, we know it's serious. And as we're going through the book of Acts in these weeks, I'm reminded by the passages that we've been looking at how people's very different views of God, how they see God, who they think he is, by the key players in this conflict that we're talking about over in the Middle East, they had, this has so much to do with what is taking place. You know, these different peoples and their view of God. <clears throat> so much that Everything, you know, the way we live and everything basically has to do with our view of God. And even if some people who don't believe in God, that has a lot to do with their lives too. And of course, the, the closer we get to line up with the scriptures of what, how the scriptures tell us about God and who he is. And we're thank, so thankful for God's grace in the scriptures because this is the way we know the truth, the bottom line truth. But the further, the closer we can get to the scriptures of knowing who God is and what the scriptures say he is, who he is, well, the better off we will be. And the more we can contribute to the good and not the bad. And in our journey in the book of Acts, <clears throat> excuse me, we have seen Saul of Tarsus become the apostle Paul. And then basically he takes center stage in the book of Acts as Luke accounts the early work of the church and the growth of the church. And we've seen the Apostle Paul move into Syria, you know, from the Holy Land, and then, which, and then into modern-day Turkey, that area. And now he's moving into modern-day southeastern Europe. And so he's making his way over towards, eventually he'll end up in Rome. But in Acts chapter 17... We see him reach three important cities. 
And we will see how in these cities, people's level of humility versus their level of pride and their view of God will make such a difference as to whether they will become children of God or remain enemies of God. Their level of pride, their level of humility, and their view of God. I'd like you to look with me as I read through Acts chapter 17 and verses 1 through 9. It says, When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on the three Sabbath days, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Now, that's going to be a hard thing to get across to people, right? If they're expecting this powerful Messiah to come and save them and everything. And Paul's trying to explain to them from the Old Testament how it said that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. So that's a, that's a big task. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. You can see humility versus pride. <clears throat> but other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. You see what happens when there's pride. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. <clears throat> you know, Luke tells us of Paul's major point. He's trying to help them understand so that they can be saved from their sins. And like I said, he's trying to explain to them how the Messiah had to die and then rise again. And that Jesus of Nazareth was that long-awaited one sent from God, and he fulfilled those scriptures because he suffered and he died and he rose from the dead. And then Paul gets a good response from some of the Jews listening. He says a large number of God-fearing Greeks, quite a few prominent women, and then the Jews that, that turned. Now, I believe this positive response reveals a generous level of humility in these individuals because they politely listened, they thought through Paul's words and his arguments, and then they had receptive hearts. But then Luke goes on to say that the other Jews were jealous. And that tells you something right there, doesn't it? You know, some were willing to look into it and consider it, and the other ones were just jealous. 
And that's why I mentioned humility versus pride. And then it says they rounded up some bad characters. How open-minded is that? They resort to evil and evil schemes to get their way. And they caused the crowd and the city officials to be, to be thrown into turmoil. When they searched for Paul and Silas at Jason's house, I mean, he could, they couldn't find him, but who knows what they would have done if they could, if they had found him. So I see this more than just a disagreement, a, a theological disagreement. I see evil characters acting out evil schemes. And I believe this happens in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of situations in our world. People who have a different opinion, <clears throat> a different mindset, or even a different vision as, they, to, as how they think things should be going. And if these people are of low moral character, they will often stop, stop at nothing to get their way or even cause chaos or unrest or confusion to eventually arrive at a victory. They want to just stir things up. They want to just stop the order. They want to present chaos. But we who claim Jesus Christ as our leader, you know, we must not allow ourselves to act on that same level. We must not have those same motives. We must resort to prayer. And we must, you know, condition ourselves to stay with what is right and true. Not necessarily give in to what we think is wrong, but just to stay on the honorable pathway in what we do and the things that we choose to do. And we see the apostles in this instance who are delivering the message of truth, they stay on that pathway, that narrow pathway in their efforts. So in this, we saw a good number of people come into faith in Christ. You know, Jesus said to the apostles before, you know, the church started, he said, on this rock, I will build my church. And Peter had just given his confession of faith when he said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says soon after that, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to overcome it. So we know that Christ is building his church. We know that Satan is trying to overcome it. But Jesus says the church will win in the end. And now we're going to see what the believers do in response to this blow up against the gospel message. Look at verses 10 through 15. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica, here they come again, learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens, 
and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Now, here again, we see humility as part of the pathway to salvation. The Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. They considered what Paul was saying. And I have been saying humility, but I think that humility is part of that more noble character. The proud person, the proud person doesn't like to think he may be wrong. And he often automatically just resists without even thinking it through. But Luke says that the Bereans and their more noble character allowed them to listen to the message, to think it through, not just to reject it, to receive it with great eagerness. And then even better, they looked into the scriptures every day to see if it matched with the scriptures. Now, that's, that's the good way to do it, isn't it? Those Bereans really do look to be outstanding people. And they seem to have exemplary attitudes. They seem to be humble enough to listen and consider and then faithful and diligent enough to look into the scriptures to see that it fits with God's truth. I'd say they're very praiseworthy. And then, you know, today <clears throat> we have mistakes on both sides. Sometimes churchgoers, in some cases, they'll just swallow everything they hear. Everything they see, anything they're told, they just believe it without looking into the scriptures. So we don't want to be wrong on either side, do we? And that's what the Bereans, they were right on both sides. They were eager to listen, they were willing to consider, and then they looked into the scriptures. And that's good, that's a good way to do it. And we want to be that way too. So here again, Christ is building his church on the rock of faith in Christ as the Messiah, the son of the living God. And here again, we see the armies of hell trying to stop it. Jews from Thessalonica come to Berea, agitating the crowds. You see how they do the same thing. They get everybody stirred up. Same old story. But this time, the believers immediately get Paul away from there, and they send him to Athens. And now we come to a key part of this morning's lesson. It's in this third city, the city of Athens, that we're going to be looking at what really uh, is going to show what needs to be done. <clears throat> so if you look at verses 16 through 21 here, it says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the, and this is Luke's comment, 
All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. <clears throat> they must have been all retired at the coffee shop, right? Now, Paul became greatly distressed to see the rampant idolatry. It, it moved him emotionally to see these people just captured by these false gods. And I want to read you just a little bit from this Bible scholar. And he, he discusses this as he had done research into this, what was in Athens back at this time. He says, there were more gods in Athens than in all the rest of the country. It was easier to find a god than a man. There were innumerable temples, shrines, statues, and altars. <clears throat> in the Par Parthenon stood a huge gold and ivory statue of Athena, whose gleaming spear point was visible 40 miles away. <laughs> Elsewhere, there were images of Apollo, the city's patron, of Jupiter, Venus, Mercury, Bacchus, Neptune, Diana, and Asclepius, Asclepius or whatever. The whole Greek pantheon was there, all the gods of Olympus, and they were beautiful. They were made not only of stone and brass, but of gold, silver, ivory, and marble. They had been elegantly fashioned by the finest Greek sculptors. There is no need to suppose that Paul was blind to their beauty, but beauty did not impress him if it did not honor God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, he was oppressed by the idolatrous use to which the God-given artistic creativity of the Athenians was being put. This is what Paul saw, a city submerged in its idols. <clears throat> he sees all the emptiness and the futility in Athens. He sees the futility of their devotion to nothingness. And it drives him to the synagogue and the marketplace, I believe, earlier than he was planning. Because as he was left off at Athens, he said, send Silas and Timothy as soon as you can. And I'm thinking, you know, he would rather be out with other people than just go by himself. But this drove him so strongly to get out there and preach that even before they get there, he's in the synagogue and the marketplace. He told those who brought him to Athens, you know, to hurry and get them there. But his heart made him go before. Now, as he does so, Luke tells about these philosophers who begin to debate with him. Well, the Epicureans and the Stoics, if you want to just make it real, real simple, the Epicureans didn't believe that the gods were close enough to make any difference, so they just said, pleasure. Just fill your life with pleasure. And the Stoics were on the opposite side, and they said, well, man is destined, he, he, he has a fate by the gods, so we have to work. So was the, there were the pleasure people against the work people. But they loved to debate, and Paul was saying very strange things according to their thinking. So Paul was asked to speak at the Areopagus, they wanted to hear this. So what could Paul say to these people? I mean, they were scholarly debaters. That was just what they did. That was their life choice. 
I mean, would he even be able to reason with them? Well, you know, as it unfolds here, as we're going to continue on, I believe Paul's speech to him here was, was really genius. Now, I'm not saying that all of them came forward and became church leaders or missionaries. I'm saying that I believe he gave them the information that was most critical for where they were. And what he does is he tells them who God is, who the true God is. And that's where I think so many people around the world, and even us here, I think we need this too. And I think our view of God leads to the things that we do, among other things. I believe our American culture has strayed from an accurate picture of God in a larger sense. And without that accurate picture, we can go astray. But look how Paul starts in verses 22 and 23. He's going to talk to them about the true God. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. <laughs> they just didn't want to miss one, did they? <clears throat> he says, so, and, and here's his conclusion. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So here goes Paul. He's going to state five things about God to them. And these are facts about God that we also need to have a handle on. And so Paul gives these as basic, basic facts that they need to understand and learn about the true God. In verse 24, it says, Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Wow. That's a heavy one. He's saying that God is the creator of the universe. And this goes against both the Epicureans and the Stoics' belief. He's the personal creator of everything that exists, and he's the personal Lord over everything that he has created. So it's really ludicrous to put God on a shrine or in a box that they have built. I mean, how could God... How could the real God fit into something like that? And then in verse 25, he says, And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Paul is telling them how their society is not even looking at God anywhere near close to who he is. Rather, he gives himself everyone, he gives he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. God is not only the creator of the universe and life, he's the sustainer of life. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything from us. He himself gives all people life and breath and everything else. So it's absurd, it's absurd to suppose that he needs us to sustain his life which, in idolatry, it works out that way. Verse 26, 
From one man he made all the nations for that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God is the ruler over all nations. And from one man, Adam, God created all the nations of the earth. That they should inhabit all the nations of the earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places that they should live. Can you just see this picture as they're listening to this? And they're thinking of statues. And he's thinking, oh no. It's way, way beyond statues. He's the designer. He's the creator, the sustainer, and he's the designer. He, he determines who lives where at what time in, in history. And then in verse 27, God did this, and look at his purpose, so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. <clears throat> God designed his creation so that man would start searching for him. How did this get here? How come it worked so wonderfully? In our sinful pride as human beings, we just want to cut him out of the picture because we don't want somebody to tell us what to do. And we want to place ourselves as kings, don't we, and prescribe all the rules. But in godly humility, and that's why I was saying that at the beginning, humility versus pride, in godly humility, we will search for him because if we're honest with ourselves, we look out and we see we can't control anything. This is so immense. We can't even see it. So Paul is telling them who the true God is. And he's telling them the one you said is the unknown God, I'm going to explain him to you to some degree. And, and at the end there, he says, though he is not far from any one of us, in verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. <clears throat> He's saying that God is so totally other than us as far as his power, his authority, his glory, his righteousness, his ability to do things, he creates. But he has made us, as human beings, in a sense, part of him. He says, because for in him we have and move and have our being. We are his offspring. He has created us. We belong to him. He is our father. Because he created us. He, we owe him all respect due to a father and even a heavenly father. And then in 29 through 31, we have the conclusion of Paul's talk. Therefore, since we are of God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent 
For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So God reigns totally supreme. He's responsible for the creation of the world and the universe. He is completely, absolutely self-sufficient. He is the one who gives us life. Our life comes from him. He has set the boundaries for nations and their times that they will live in history. He created us with a desire to search for him and to want to get to know him. And if we are thinking rightly, and I'm going back to the humility versus pride, we will desire to know him. If we are proud, we don't want to get to know him. If we, are, we ignore him, we try to bring glory to ourselves and we become fools. And it says, now he commands people everywhere to repent because there is coming a day of judgment. And he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, who he raised from the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, when we look at this matter going on in our world right now, they don't accept God for who the Bible says he is. And, and they're certainly not concerned about judgment coming. Not in the true sense. They have their own version of it. But he is going to judge the world by the man he has appointed, the one he rose from the dead. You know, the further we move away from a belief in God as a nation, the more stupid we become. I mean, if you think what people are believing out there these days, it just boggles the mind. Some of the things that people are taking up, marching for and believing. But we have to cling to the truths of the scripture. And at the top of the list is the person of God. And then the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And we have to place our faith firmly in him. And so these last three verses tell us, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. You know, some have, some scholars have seen this episode in Paul's preaching journey as somewhat of a failure, you know, because he, he maybe it doesn't look like he got tons of people. I don't think so. Some became followers of Paul. Uh, you know, they didn't lift him up on the shoulders and parade him through the streets. But some believed, and that's, that's what counts, right? So we need to keep getting, getting the word of life out, don't we? We need just to keep getting it out, even if we don't bring thousands to the Lord through our lives, through our discussions, through our friendships, 
through our willingness to help others, through our concern for them. And we can also see the fruit of our labors. For we know that Christ is Lord of heaven and earth.